Hi, this is Mark Vina with more insights and strategy. Today is March 6, 2019, and today's podcast topic um, is a recap of all the shenanigans. Maybe shenanigans is a bad word, but all the fun stuff that happened at Mobile World Congress um, last week. I've got on the uh, podcast today uh, two of my colleagues at More Insights, uh, Anshel Sag and Will Townsend. Um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm giving kudos to Will because he, he came back from Europe um, with a bit of a cold, but he's being a champ and uh, participating in today's podcast. But uh, a lot of things happened last week at Mobile World Congress. Unfortunately, I was not there. I was at the Samsung Galaxy phone event, which happened the week before. And a lot of the momentum from their announcement obviously kind of... Um, Kind of drifted into the uh, into Mobile World Congress, but let's start off right off the bat uh, and talk a little bit about um, the, the topic that I think a lot of people are talking about. Let's talk about 5G before we get into some of the hardware-related aspects of um, Mobile World Congress. And uh, well, you wrote a very interesting column uh, for Forbes not too recently, uh, very recently I should say, um, about uh, the way you know 5G and its impact. You know, different players in the, in the category are approaching it in different ways. Some are saying it's a replacement for Wi-Fi. Others are coming at it from saying it's a very complementary technology to other wireless technologies out there. Let's get your perspective on 5G and, you know, maybe your perspective on how that was kind of addressed um, from an opportunity standpoint at Mobile World Congress. Sure, Mark. Hey, th- again, thanks for hosting. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, this year uh, marked um, – 5G is being real. We've heard a lot about fake 5G. I think some of the carriers, especially in the U.S., have been um, confusing the market with densification strategy and that sort of thing. But really, from my perspective, number one, from an infrastructure standpoint, 5G is real. We have new radio that's that's certified equipment. Um, all the major infrastructure providers, Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei, Samsung, and the like, um, are, are in the midst of deploying um, that infrastructure. And you bring up a very good point. Another observation that I made at the show is that you're beginning to see a convergence of enterprise networking, which is an area that I also cover in addition to 5G, uh, and wireless WAN. And so you're beginning to see some of the, the, the lines blur. You're seeing some um, carriers and operators that are, once they deploy 5G, they'll also be deploying other services that are adjacent to traditional enterprise networking, such as SD-WAN. Um, I guess the big controversy, uh, and I think it's been driven um, from the carrier side of things, is that 5G has the capability, uh, theoretically, uh, to to supplant uh, Wi-Fi technology. There, there are a lot of challenges with that. So you're you're comparing a licensed spectrum technology with an unlicensed spectrum technology. You also have different propagation. So traditionally. Um, LTE, wireless wide area networking, has challenges within an indoor environment, right? And, and also the economics. So, um, you know, a wireless WAN solution is going to be inherently, it's going to have more uh, cost associated with it. So, you know, from my perspective, I've spoken with a lot of companies. Uh, before the show, I, I spent time with Aruba. I've also spent time with Cisco. Talked to some very, very smart guys. And, and, and in reality, you know, the way I like to summarize it is, Wi-Fi and 5G will be better together. Um, mm-hmm. The blend it'll it'll be a blend of both based on customer requirement, use case, and those economics that I was speaking to. Right, right. Uh, Agile, from your perspective, um, you know when you look at 5G at, at, a, at a high level and 
and some of the things which I absolutely agree with uh, that Will um, you know, has brought to the table. You know, what's your perspective on 5G in terms of, A, the, 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 you know, how quickly is it going to show up and become a real thing? I mean, no question. There's, there's, you know, Samsung, for example, announced 5G capability in all their new phones. But from a practical standpoint, you know, how do you see it, um, you know, expanding from a mainstream standpoint over the next uh, 12 months or so? So I, I think that when you look at the market right now, uh, there's very little real 5G that you can test, try out, and use, even though multiple operators are claiming that they have it. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality of the situation is you you have basically two camps uh, in the 5G space right now. One of those is 5G is real, 5G is here now. And then you have the camp that says, 5G is a future technology. 5G is something that you should only really care about next year because this year is going to just not be good. Mm-hmm. And I think a little, you know, the reality is the truth is usually somewhere in between. Yeah. And um, the reality yeah, is there are there are definitely some, some benefits to 5G that I think can be realized this year. And honestly, I think by the end of this year, 5G will look much more mature than it does today. Um, I think people are discovering some of the, you know, questionable tactics that some of the operators have deployed in claiming that they have 5G. Um, you know, both AT&T and Verizon have done this. Uh, AT&T has done this with their 5GE initiative, which essentially rebadges their already existing 4G LTE um, connectivity and calls it 5GE, which I think is disingenuous. And most people agree, including Sprint, who has sued them. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, companies like Verizon that are deploying millimeter wave spectrum in non 5G NR uh, protocols and calling that 5G as well, which will eventually be upgraded to the real 5G NR, but it's still disingenuous regardless. So I think there's you know, these carriers in the race to say who's first have confused the market and and basically driven people to question what is 5G and whether or not we need it. Mm-hmm. And I think this first quarter has really shown that these carriers' ambitions have, have kind of hurt them because in the race to be first, they have completely confused the market. Yeah. And, and now over the next six to nine months, I think you're going to start to realize and see the real 5G deployments, um, both from the sub six and the millimeter wave guys. And I think, you know, by Q4, we'll have a much better idea of where 5G is at this year than we will today. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot more deployments and faster deployments. But I don't think people are going to really see what they expect from 5G, either from a speed or or bandwidth perspective until later this year. Right. Hey, Mark. Yeah, yeah I'd like to add something to what Angel said, too. And I completely agree. And what's happening is the infrastructure, the base stations, all of that, you know, the massive MIMO millimeter wave is just beginning to become deployed, right? And so, like, in parts of the world, you know, the hardware can be out there, but it's going to be a software flip of the switch, right? Mm-hmm. The, other, the other challenge has been um, we're not going to start seeing devices until calendar 2Q of this year. And so, you know, I, and, and I completely agree with Angel. The, the carriers at least in the U.S. are being very, very aggressive and bold about their claims. They're actually doing things like he and I both mentioned earlier. 
about confusing the market with, with densification of current LTE uh, networks, but it's going to take time. So this is not a, this is not a, a light switch. Um, it's going to take time for this um, infrastructure to get deployed. Um, you know, like, you know, basically, you know, it's going to, it's going to be in waves, right? So, you know, um, for example, Verizon announced four major metros for their fixed wireless access solution that launched last year, which is based on technical forum, which is a pre-NR standard. Um, mm -hmm. As you see the NR standard being rolled out for both mobile and fixed, um, you know, you'll be getting, you'll, you'll see more and more ubiquity. So I completely agree with Angel. I think by calendar four Q this year, there's going to be, um, there, there's going to be much more momentum behind deployment in the second half. And I think we'll start seeing some of, um, you know, the benefit of that. And, uh, and, and, you know, and really from my perspective, the game changer with truth, you know, with real NR based 5G is that low latency and the capability to do that from a mobile perspective. Right. And, uh, and that'll be exciting to see. We know there, there are use cases out there uh, today that have been spoken to around tactile applications such as robotics and, and, and not telemedicine, but actually telesurgery, mm -hmm. real time streaming video that sort of thing for traffic and, and, you know, that, that sort of first responder, you know, capabilities and AR as well, but right. Where, where latency has yeah. to be really, really low. Exactly. Those, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but agree with Angel, it's, it's too early. I think that the carriers, at least in the U S are, are, they're too far in front of it. And I think it's, it's over hyping the machine. And I even spoke to this in the Forbes article that posted this week that I wrote that now it's time for the operators to, to move past what I call the shiny object phase of 5g and really start focusing on the use cases and start communicating to the markets what they're going to do for not only consumers, but I think actually it's going to be more compelling to see what's going to happen um, on the enterprise side of things for, for application sets. Right. Well, so let me ask you both of you a question because the you know, question I get from a lot of my friends, and I, I suspect you get a question, uh, this question from a lot of your friends who are early adopters, you know, those folks that are willing to go out and spend $1,200, $1,300, $1,500 for a 5G class phone. My guess will be if when Apple rolls out their phones with, um, with uh, 5G cl uh, class um, iPhones, they'll be in a similar type of price class. They're not going to sell those kind of phones at a discount. Is there a risk out there that, if you're, if, that early adopters may actually you know, wind, wind up in the penalty box because certain carriers won't support an implementation of 5G on their phones, meaning that you know, obviously there's a close carrier relationship between the carrier and, and certain manufacturers of 5G phones. But suppose you want to switch down the road. You know, I buy an iPhone, let's say, that has 5G capability that I'm using it on Verizon. And six months later, I want to switch to AT&T. I'm using that just as a broad example. Is there a risk out there from that, that there may be compatibility problems as 5G gets rolled out? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I think a really good point, and I actually had this discussion with multiple OEMs that are launching 5G phones. And this question was brought up multiple times because there's multiple bands of millimeter wave and there's multiple bands of sub six running in 5G. And the, the, the answer I got was basically, if you wanna have an interoperable device, especially in the first couple years, you're much more likely to have that interoperability between carriers mm -hmm. if, if you get a millimeter wave device because then you're compatible with what Verizon and AT&T are doing, and you're also compatible with what Sprint and T-Mobile are doing on sub six, because if you're gonna support millimeter wave, you're most likely gonna also support sub six because that's gonna be the next step. Mm -hmm. And 
and you've already paid the penalty in terms of design and extra components to do the millimeter wave. So you might as well do the sub six as well, because there's a lot of antenna sharing there with LTE. Right. So it makes more, that's why millimeter wave devices are more likely to be more expensive than sub six. But in theory, they shouldn't be much more, just a little more. Um, there's more engineering, there's more components. But yeah, I would say the, the, the answer I got was aim for a millimeter wave device because then you'll most likely be able to switch between carriers. But there's no guarantees. Um, no one has really come out and said, buy this device and it will work on all operators. So mm -hmm. that's not a guarantee quite yet. So, yeah. so, so, so in your and I, well, let me throw this question out to you. So in your sure. mind, does this translate to, you know what? I would hold off for six months before you go out and buy a 5G phone. Or the alternative is if you buy a 5G phone that's, you know, that's married to a particular carrier, don't expect to be able to switch carriers, you know, over a period of time. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to get to a, what's the comfort level that people should go out and buy a 5G phone and have some level of confidence, yeah. you know, that it will work with a variety of different carriers after the fact. Yeah, my perspective is, you know, as Angel mentioned, there's there's a mix of different spectrum and, you know, technologies. And so if the concern is, you know, having something that's going to give you the investment protection long term, uh, it's probably not a wise move. Now, you know, as an early adopter, if you're satisfied with your service, with your carrier, you don't plan to, you know, to move, then um, then take the plunge. And it really it's, it's based on, you know, your your usage. Right. And, and what you like to do. I mean, one of, uh, from a consumer perspective, one of the uh, services that um, Sprint talked about at Mobile World Congress was um, a streaming service. And so that'll take advantage of, of low latency on, on their 5G network. So, you know, it's really sort of aligned to like what you do when you're mobile and, um, and whether you're an early adopter or not. Right. Right. Well, it's going to be an interesting uh, situation as, as, as uh, all new technology deployments are, and uh, we'll obviously be, both of you guys will be on top of it. I, I want to switch topics um, very quickly to, you know, Mobile World Congress obviously has always had a very strong mobile flavor associated with it, hence the name, but it's become much more of a technology show just beyond mobile phones. And one of the big announcements at, um, at Mobile World Congress was uh, Microsoft announced uh, their new HoloLens 2. And I, I know, uh, I think, actually, you had a chance to play with it, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm sure you've got a perspective on it. Yeah, I was actually at the launch event, sitting in the front row. So I got some pretty awesome photos and upfront, you know, firsthand demonstrations from the launch. But I also actually went and did three of the demos as well. Uh, I haven't quite finished writing up my, my thoughts on the topic, but um, they're pretty solidified at this point. And... The, the one thing that I really like what they did with the new HoloLens is they've essentially integrated all of the future technologies that I believe uh, AR and VR need to be successful down the road. So I think they've actually built a device that's ahead of its time, kind of like the original HoloLens, but I hope that they, you know, obviously introduce newer versions at a faster rate than they currently have. Um, the way I see it is the new HoloLens fixes almost every single problem the original had and addresses things that maybe the original didn't have, but I believe as an industry will have to be addressed in the future. So I think the HoloLens 2 is a really good device for today and into the future, and they really made a lot of really good decisions overall mm -hmm. uh, with, the, with the current with the HoloLens 2. Um, so I'm, I'm actually quite satisfied with what they've done with it, and my experience has been pretty positive. Um, there's always room for improvement, 
when it comes to these devices in terms of you know improving image quality, improving color, uh, resolution, and, and field of view. Um, but I think right now where we're at in terms of the industry, I think it's a good enough device that people want to build to it and actually utilize it in real workflows. And I think that's the most important part is you can have a great technology demo and you can have some great capabilities, but unless people really want to integrate it into their workflow, um, I think that people won't utilize anything until that happens. And that's also why I think Microsoft you know, didn't just launch the hardware on its own, but they've launched a supporting ecosystem around it to enable the HoloLens and the developers who want to use the HoloLens to really be a powerful platform. Right. And, and, and I just want to make sure that we're clear about this, is that HoloLens 2 is really an a enterprise scenario class product. It's really not a consumer product per se. Would you agree with that, that um, perspective? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they made it explicitly clear that this is in no way, shape, or form a consumer product. Mm -hmm. Now, if you choose to build your own consumer application for it, they're not going to stop you. But <laughs> they don't want to encourage people thinking that this is an, a consumer product because the first question starts becoming price. Right, and, exactly. And they don't want to be negotiable on price. And I don't think they necessarily have to be, even though they did lower the price from $5,000 to three and a half. Uh, I, and they now offer a monthly option for, for accessing the device. So you don't have to you know, put the whole three and a half grand up front. Mm -hmm. But the way I look at it is, as a business, it's much more easy to realize the productivity benefits or you know, faster pace of business or whatever it is that HoloLens will enable you to do much right. more quickly um, and realize that $3,500 investment than if you're a consumer. Um, you know, consumers are generally looking to it as a, you know, entertainment perspective and how much entertainment can I get out of this? What's my utility right. in terms of entertainment? Meanwhile, right. business is looking at how do I utilize this in my business to make my business more efficient and more profitable? Right. No, I, I agree with that. And you know, very often, of course, out of the enterprise comes a lot of interesting consumer technology um, applications. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that down the road there wouldn't be things that come out of the deployment of the, the new HoloLens 2 that may not be applicable to uh, the consumer space. But if Microsoft is not going to do a lot of the heavy lifting from a platform standpoint, it's hard to do that unless you're going to take that, take that whole thing on by yourself, which is going to be kind of, I think it's going to be kind of tough. Um, you know, one topic I definitely want to make sure that we, we comment on uh, because it re really was, you know, one of the big, um, it's the big, one of the big topics that got kicked off with the Samsung um, foldable announcement uh, in San Francisco um, a couple of weeks ago is, you know, is foldable phones going to be a thing, so to speak? And, uh, you know, you know, my view was it was interesting that it led the kickoff that Anshel, you and I and Pat were at um, a couple of weeks ago. But interestingly enough, in the demo room where they had this you know, enormous demo room where all the uh, uh, Galaxy devices were under display, there was not a foldable phone to be played with. And I guess the first and foremost is that my understanding is you could play with the foldable phone at, at, uh, at um, Mobile World Congress. That's correct, guys? It was out there in display? So basically, it, it was not. It was out there in display, but nobody could touch it unless you were given you know, access in a private room. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was only for the Huawei um, Mate X. 
if mm-hmm. you wanted to play with the Samsung, as far as I understood, nobody had access to that. And both of them were kind of just sitting on the show floor in multi multiple layers of glass case. Which <laughs> I, I didn't really mm-hmm. think engendered much confidence no. in right. the product's viability. Right. Well, and I'm glad you pointed it out because the, and I'm asking you lots of leading questions, but, you know, I think the big concern before you even get to the question of, well, is having a larger screen and a, a foldable form factor, is that something useful? I mean, the first question I ask is that, and there's been a lot written about the hinge design that Samsung has kind of implemented. Is the phone going to stand up from a durability standpoint? You know, is, is the kid going to be able to take the phone and break it in half by folding it the wrong way? So I don't know whether you guys have a perspective on that, but that is like first and foremost the question I'd like to get resolved in my, in my mind. Is it going to be a durable design? So yeah. go, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Anshel. Uh, so I'll I'll make a quick comment and then I'll let Will chime in as well because I've been talking too much. Um, the way I see it is, I believe in foldables. I think foldables are going to be a new category of device. Um, you can almost call them a three-in-one. I think these are going to be the kind of devices that one person a person is going to want to buy to replace their phone, their tablet, and their PC. Uh, I don't think they're quite there yet, but I do believe foldables are the future. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at how PCs evolved, you'll see that they started to evolve into multiple use cases and multiple form factors, and the right. same will happen with smartphones. But right now, today, and probably within the next year or two, I don't really think they're quite ready, and they're going to be a very niche product. Well, your thoughts? Yeah, no. Um, so I'll, I'll take the, the commercial side of things. So I think long-term... Um, a foldable design has um, great applicability when you look at certain verticals and use cases. So one example could be field service. And, you know, imagine a technician that's, in, you know, in, a, in an oil field. And, um, you know, they can't carry like pounds and pounds and pounds of equipment. So to have a device that, that's small, that's pocketable, that they can open up and have larger real estate to um, do something like, um, have real-time video back to some sort of call center when they're trying to diagnose an issue that they can't figure out. I think I think that is where a foldable potentially has a lot of potential. So I think you'll actually see um, a lot of enterprise applications over time that take advantage of 5G's you know extreme low latency, uh, and I think video uh, will be will be the real killer there. And if you, from a consumer standpoint, I, I could see hey enhanced, you know, navigation, right, with a larger screen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no secret that um, that my, my buddies that I went to college with at, at Nantic and Pokemon Go, you know, um, you know, people would want to take advantage of a, of a larger screen. It's something that's kind of foldable, you know, for, uh, for an AR-type video, you know, game experience. And certainly that is a service, as I've t- uh, spoken with all of the carriers in the U.S., as well as Orange and Voda, that they're looking at. So, you know, low latency gaming, mobile gaming, I think will will rise to the top as a as a as a key use case and a service that the uh, the carriers will be able to monetize and you know slice their networks to dedicate you know um, you know for uh, for that type of application. So, right. You know, I think you know, in Anshul's right, I think you know it's it's going to take a while for adoption to kick in. But what I what I'm looking at is you know what are the applications on the enterprise side. I'll also mention too that um, I spent some time with Huawei at the, the event. Um, I thought, you know, I got pretty close to the device. I couldn't actually hold it, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. as well. But 
But what, 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 I, what I found interesting about Huawei's approach is, um, you know, they actually named the hinge. They call it the Falcon Wing. Sounds like something out of Batman. Yeah, um, or but, Tesla. But, or Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they state that they spent uh, over $100 million U.S. dollars in three years in development, um, you know, with that design. I think Samsung mentioned something right, Angel, around five years in development on, on their hinge design. And like so $150 million. yeah. Yeah, so it's... You know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, both of these companies are putting a lot of effort, um, you know, into it. So uh, they, they must know something, you know, about the market. But but obviously it's also an attempt really to because, you know, it's no secret that, you know, Apple had, you know, one of uh, one of their less than stellar quarters recently that, you know, smartphones are are reaching a saturation point. You know, people are holding on to them longer uh, and longer. And so a foldable feature, I think, is a way, obviously, for Huawei, you know, Samsung, eventually Apple, when they enable 5G in their devices to, uh, to you know, to, to basically capture a premium segment of the market. And it's certainly premium when you look at the pricing. I think 1950 on the on the Samsung Fold and I think 2250 US for the, the Huawei Mate X10. Yeah, they're pretty pricey. And yeah. I think... I think part of the reason why these devices are, are as pricey as they are, they're not a volume product. And I don't really think that these displays are are necessarily in high yield yet because they're so new, even though this, this, te- this yeah. technology has been around for a while. But the hinges are also probably not very easy to manufacture. So there's a lot of components here. Plus, they're all trying to integrate 5G into these devices to justify the cost. Because can you imagine if they were shipping a device for two grand and didn't have 5G while right. cheaper devices had 5G? So right. that, just, that just complicates things further. Um, but I think media consumption, as Will said, is going to be the primary use case. Uh, and I think it's going to be interesting to see people trying to figure out how to make use of more screen space. But ultimately, I think one of the big problems for for all these Android manufacturers is going to be how do we utilize the screen space in a way that's meaningful? Because previously, you know, Android really hasn't done a very good job of addressing the tablet form factor. So you know, being able to switch from a phone to a tablet means that you you already have a pretty good tablet experience, which Android does not. So I think Google needs to address that as well as the transition from smartphone to tablet. Right. Well, and and, and we're out of, almost out of time here, but the, the one thing I would like to close with is something that you said a few minutes ago, Anshel, and that I think what you're seeing, and now, of course, there is... Um, you're seeing some of the execution from a form factor standpoint is this whole vision of your smartphone device as the form factors grow larger, whether they're, you know, a traditional just portrait class form factor or perhaps these foldable form factors. And with changes in the operating system, and the one thing we didn't talk about that, you know, uh, Samsung spent quite a bit of time at their announcement talking about how they're, a- they're adding you know, fairly significant windowing capabilities to Android so you can run multiple applications in a true multitasking type of way. And, you know, we, Apple doesn't really have that with iOS. They have a little bit of it, but they haven't really gone that far down the path yet. And uh, this whole notion that, you know, your smartphone device with a terabyte of storage, which is available on the new uh, smartphone uh, Galaxy um smartphones you know it could be the the one device that you have you don't need a laptop you know you don't need some other uh, other pro, uh, productivity product you know beyond a really cool smartphone with these advanced capabilities so i think that's i don't think we're there yet but i think that's certainly the the trajectory uh that we're on right now so in any event that's all the time we have this week uh Anshel and uh, will thank you very much for your time 
Uh, please subscribe to the More Insights um, uh, and Strategy uh, podcast on Apple iTunes. And please follow us on social media. And on, until next week, this is Mark Vina with More Insights and Strategy. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.